Today's podcast may have some sound issues since one of the editors is in Lisbon and he's recording from his hotel room. Listeners should also be aware there may be some spoilers. James Bond. We both eradicate people to make the world a better place. I just want to be a little tidier. Welcome to Editors on Editing, the new podcast in collaboration with American Cinema Editors and Pro Video Coalition. I'm Glenn Garland, and I'm joined by Tom Cross and Elliot Graham. Tom has edited such outstanding films as Whiplash, for which he won the Oscar and the Independent Spirit Award, as well as being nominated for the Eddie and the BAFTA, Joy, for which he was co-nominated for the Eddie, La La Land, for which he won the Eddie and was nominated for both the Oscar and the BAFTA, Hostels, and First Man, for which he was nominated for the Eddie and the BAFTA. Elliot has edited such phenomenal projects as Milk, for which he was nominated for both the Oscar and the Eddie, Steve Jobs, for which he shared executive producer of the album, Molly's Game, for which he was co-nominated for the Eddie, X-Men 2, and Captain Marvel. He started working with director Kerry Fukunawa on commercials and worked on his Beast of No Nation. Now Elliot and Tom have collaborated to bring one of the most highly anticipated films of the last year, the fantastic spectacle, No Time to Die. I loved what you guys did. I thought that this Bond is so interesting and there's so many layers to the character and just thought you guys did a fantastic job cutting it. Thank you. Excited to chat about it. Yeah. So how did you guys both get involved? I think Elliot came at it first because Elliot was attached when Danny Boyle was going to direct. And so when Danny Boyle dropped out... Elliot had already started to establish a relationship with Eon Productions, but also Elliot had worked with Carrie before. I came about, I think, because of Lena Sandgren, the cinematographer. What I heard was that before the movie First Man was released, Carrie screened the movie privately with Barbara to really look at Linus's work. And apparently they really liked the movie. And I think at the same time, they took note of my work. And simultaneously, my agent was pitching me for the movie because that was something that I was really keen to do. Being, like many of us, a Bond fan, I remember telling my agent, I would love to work on a James Bond movie. So (laughs) the stars aligned with this screening. You were on it for more than just (laughs) the fact that that screening happened. Carrie's a director who's interested in people who have a unique resume. This is not knocking anyone. Not guys who have only done action, some of which are my favorite editors in the world, by the way, but Carrie's interested in people with, if you will, a more eclectic, diverse resume. So having somebody like Tom is a outstanding thing to carry because there's going to be some originality that comes from that. Was there much time between when Danny dropped out and they brought Carrie on? And how did the project change between those two different visions? I can't remember it. Like a month? Tom, do you even remember? It was a short amount of time. They had a real rush. So I think Carrie came on pretty quickly because with a movie as big as Bond, you really risk losing not only the amazing team at Eon Productions, but you risk losing all the locations and the stages, which have to be booked sometimes a year in advance. And what was the pressure to deliver on such an iconic character, not to mention uh, Daniel Craig's last venture? 
for some of us working on a James Bond film is definitely one of the crowning achievements. And I will say, I've loved James Bond since I was a kid, but nobody knows James Bond trivia and backstory like Tom Cross in the world, period. <laughs> I'll leave that to him. I'm, I'm crazy. Yeah. But, but no, in a really beautiful way and immensely useful. But I don't know if I've ever thought about it in terms of pressure, but I thought of it in terms of responsibility to Daniel. He wanted to go out on a high and he deserved to because he's spectacular as Bond. And I think we all wanted that for him. You can't help but feel the presence, especially when you're at Pinewood Studios. All the buildings at Pinewood are named after James Bond collaborators, the John Barry Theater, the Ken Adams stage, you know, and then, of course, the giant 007 stage built for The Spy Who Loved Me. But, you know, to Elliot's point, if we felt a responsibility, it was to Daniel's James Bond. And we had to we had to make sure that he not only went out with a bang, but really tied all of his stories together. Well, speaking of that, how was working with Barbara Broccoli and that whole contingent? They're probably very careful with the character because they've uh, been involved with it for 25 films. Barbara's fucking rad. And I think Tom and I both loved her. And she's just one of the most remarkable producers I've ever worked with. She's spectacular as a producer, as a creative person, as a logistical person, as somebody who understands and respects the thing that she's taking care of and someone who wants to elevate it. There's no part of this that she doesn't have her hands on, and she's one of the most remarkable people I've met. And by the way, Michael, Greg, the entire family are fantastic, all of them. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I found Barbara, Michael, and Greg to be some of the most approachable producers I've ever worked with. They're legendary, but really have no errors about them. They are protective about the James Bond character, and especially about Daniel, but they are very approachable creatively. They're caring good people. You know, I suppose in a way he's like one of their family members. I think Barbara Broccoli said growing up, she used to think James Bond was a real person, (laughs) but they're not overly precious about things. They are very approachable and they wanted Carrie to do his take. They wanted to allow Carrie to tell the story cinematically the way he felt it should be told. So, Which is awesome. um, Which is incredible. Yeah. And would not get hung up on Bond tropes They really would be great producers to work with any director because they give the director a lot of leeway. They wanted Carrie to put the Carrie stamp on things. They didn't want to micromanage. They never micromanaged. Having seen the film, you know that they're willing to be bold. These are not people who just sit back and go, well, it's James Bond. Let's turn it out like I won't name other franchises. Yeah, I felt like this film took huge swings. In some of the earlier Bond films, it was a huge deal if Bond fell in love or if something was a little bit different. This film really took his character and made it very three-dimensional and complex. And I thought Carrie, yourselves, and everybody involved did a fantastic job with keeping it fresh, modern, and complex. That's everyone. And well, but it also is a reminder that Daniel Craig is an Oscar-worthy actor. You know, Daniel's Bond has always been about bringing a certain emotional component. I remember Barbara came in at some point early on to talk to me and Elliot, and she said, make it emotional. She knew that it's Bond, so there's going to be spectacular set pieces, there's going to be action. But above all else, she said, make it emotional. And Elliot and I always kept that in our minds. It was very clear. And it was easy to keep it in our minds because... We would get the performances, and you just had to follow the performances, which were very emotional. Sure. Even beyond the dialogue scenes, the action scenes and some of the suspense scenes 
there's an emotional component. And I also noticed that when things are fast with the action, you're always very careful to have a lot of reactions of the various characters. Absolutely. I think, Elliot, you probably have similar memories about this, where you get some type of action scene to put together, and often they are made up of these little pieces of Daniel being really intense. And stunt coordinator Olivier would come over, and I remember he talked about how often, not always, you would have some type of action scene that would be made up of all these small pieces because Daniel really wanted to give 110% in these little pieces, a hit here or a move here. And within that small piece, Daniel would just be ferocious. All that being said, Carrie wanted to do certain action scenes like in a one or longer takes. So what was, what was fun is the movie is filled with different styles in that way. Well, speaking to the Warners, I thought it was really effective and very powerful how in the climax on his mission to eradicate Safin, there's a lot of Warners and we're sort of staying with Daniel rather than seeing it from a third person point of view. I thought it was really effective and very intense because you felt like you were him going through this maze. I think Carrie knew that when you have a movie this long and this large and this epic that you're going to want to change it up every so often. You're going to want to change the pace. You're going to want to have different approaches stylistically to the scenes. And so I think by this point, the clock is ticking and time is running out. That was part of why Carrie wanted to almost extend time in a way. It's counterintuitive, but I think Carrie knew that this was going to have a certain emotional effect because the audience would consciously or unconsciously know that you were kind of cinematically holding your breath in a way that you weren't cutting. And mm-hmm. that's going to have a certain effect. It's kind of great in a way because normally at that point in the story, the feeling might be, let's make it faster. We need to keep the audience's attention. We need to make it quicker. But that's what's great about what Carrie wanted to do. How can we hold on to the audience and tighten that rubber band and pull it back and pull it back and have the audience feel that? So a lot of it is logistical as well. There was a time where the Cuba sequence was one shot. Oh, really? That worked out for the best because it gave more power to the oneer at the end. But Daniel, what did he break his ankle? He hurt it very badly. And he was shot at one time. Anna Darmus was shot at another time. The baddies and a lot were shot at another time. And then there was a little overlap. Over the course of what five months, Tom? It's something like that. that yeah, long extended together. period of time. And in fact, there's addition by subtraction because it wasn't a wonder because he couldn't do it that way. It ended up becoming more powerful than it was a wonder at the end. Maybe that's an accidental plus. Absolutely. What was it like working with Carrie? Because he's got a very specific point of view and he's got a very strong vision. He is a very, very smart storyteller and can be very detail oriented. But he is also very collaborative in the editing room in that he likes to see a lot of different versions of scenes. Even though he has some very specific ideas in mind, he approaches the editing room more broadly. The movie that I'm working on now, Damien Chazelle's Babylon, he's the sort of director that, for the most part, really has a vision of exactly what he wants. And he tries to execute exactly what's in his head. And then we work together to try to really make that plan as close to what he has in his head as possible. And then once we get there, he really likes to turn to me and say, "Okay, well, 
how do we make it even better? And Carrie, he is also a perfectionist and knows what he likes, knows what he doesn't like, but he really likes to kick the tires on things. So a big directive he had for me and for Elliot was to cut a lot of alternate versions. So right out of the gate, you would send him a cut and he would encourage alternates. And it can be very time consuming. Especially when you're trying to keep up with daily. That's right. And that's where Elliot and I working together is extremely helpful. And I don't know how you would get it done without both of us kind of tag teaming it. But he would kind of force you to rethink what you did. He would kind of really push you to change stuff. Try a different take. Try this approach. And again, at first counterintuitive. But you found once you started throwing away everything that was kind of sacred to you in a way, it's interesting how sometimes you would arrive at something that was kind of better or more interesting. Mm. I kind of liked it after a certain point. Do you feel like you're going to continue to do that in the future when you're not working with Carrie? I've already done that in a couple shows. There's a show I helped out on where I really took it as a challenge to come up with a completely different take on something, even if it was not exactly what I thought was my first choice in my head. An easy one would be to do a version where it's just all the profiles, you know, reverse the cutting pattern. Mm. And it might not be my first choice because I might prefer the frontal singles better. But I would find that when I would show Carrie or show this other director, they would start responding to certain moments in Mm. it. And then I'd realize that I was blind to those moments because I had something in my Mm -hmm. head. And it was never as simple as like, oh, I like the other version better. It was more like, I like this moment here and I like this moment. And then I would realize, oh, I never considered that moment because I was in this other coverage. Sure. Wow. And then would he then give you notes on those cuts and that's how you, you know, started doing yes. the alts? Or would he just ask you to do alts? You know, he would ask us to do alts. Hmm. And after a certain point, we just knew that that's what he wanted. Working with David or Russell, David likes to try many different things, go off on these little branches, as he would call them. But he would always pitch them. David would really set the table with the versions that he thought would be interesting for you to try. Carrie wouldn't really tell you what versions to try or alternates. He would usually just tell you what he didn't like. It was an interesting thing. And again, challenging at first because the thought is, what else should I try? Because this is the cut that I think works. But it sort of made you think. Yeah. You're sort of working a different muscle in a way because I know for me, I try to go with my first instinct and my gut. I guess what was liberating about it is he kind of encouraged you to to take these swings Mm -hmm. and... I never felt like I was striking out in a way. He didn't judge you if you took a big swing and it didn't work. I didn't feel judged. I mean, he doesn't mince words, so he'd be pretty quick to tell you what he didn't think worked. He was like, I don't like this cut or I don't like this shot. I don't like this music. He would be very clear about what he didn't like. And I think in some ways he's mining for gold. Yes. I think it could be really useful in a lot of ways. And I found it really was. And I I feel like for me, you know, I always feel like I had so much to learn and so much more experience to get. One of the beautiful things about what we do in the edit room is that each scene and each actor and each director presents different challenges. So you're always stretching yourself. It never becomes rote. That's right. And we become professionals. We've become excellent at what we do. But I don't know if we ever stop having the ability to be even better at our craft. Right. And that's 
for me, very exciting about it. Yeah, and it's very exciting for me, too. I, I have this idealized version of film editors in my head, Dee Dee Allen or Margaret Booth or Bill Reynolds or some of these maestro editors. But the more and more I talk to editors and the more and more I read interviews with older editors, it becomes clear that all the great ones evolve and still learn and everyone still gets nervous. And I find that kind of uh, a relief. I've known Carrie for like 12 years. Carrie's not your warm and fuzzy teddy bear that hugs you <laughs> and says thank you for every single thing you do. He wants to come in and see shit. Is there permission to experiment? Yes. That doesn't always mean there's excitement over the experimentation, but when something works, it works. And so Carrie will put in the best thing, period. I mean, it's all fun. And the most challenging stuff is, is the most fun stuff. I mean, I don't know how everybody else feels, probably similarly. There's a lot of satisfaction when you land something that's hard, but also there's sure. a lot of joy in the process. And if you're not having joy in the process of discovering, what's the point? Absolutely. So I think all the best directors are open to experimentation. And if you're not, you may not get the best film. Lesser directors are less interested in seeing experiments. They want exactly what they wanted. And the only times I've been frustrated on a film are when people don't want you to experiment. Not about being right or wrong. Experiment. Play. Dance. Absolutely. Right? There's a scene where they're at MI6. You have Q and M and Bond and Nomi, and they're looking at graphics on a big screen, so the bioweapon. Mm -hmm. And originally, it comes right after a scene on the river where M and Bond rebond, if you will. There was a car scene, and half of the information that was covered in the scene in the office was covered as Bond and M drove to the office. And we went, well, you know what? This is too long. Why don't we just put all this information into one scene? And literally, some of the audio you hear was recorded in the back of the car. And the graphics were shown on an iPhone. And then we took those graphics and put them on the big screen and picked the dialogues and went, same information, less time. I mean, there's more complex, exciting ones, right? But that's a simple example. So I noticed that there were a lot of overhead shots, and, and a lot of them were almost godlike, where they were shooting directly downward. And I was wondering if you could speak to that at all. Yeah, it was an informal motif in a way. The opening shot when we come out of the gun barrel is this overhead of these trees and the snow mm -hmm. and you see a figure walking. And we don't know this immediately, but we learn later that that is Safin approaching Madeline's home. And when Bond goes to see her later, Carrie shot some of those same shots because he wanted to call back to that earlier scene. Interesting. And so the cutting pattern is, is not identical, but there is an overhead of Bond's new Aston Martin. And then we do have a shot that's almost an exact repeat where we're over the shoulder of Bond. So I think Carrie liked the idea of playing around with making it very surreal. Like, we know that Bond's a killer, you know, we know Safin's a killer, but I think he liked that playing around with that a little bit. Well, Safin even speaks to the fact That's that right. they're very similar and they're, they're you very know, similar. They, they're the same person, even yeah. though Bond doesn't yeah. want to acknowledge it. They have the same issues. They've had the same childhood dreams destroyed. That's they, right. In some ways, they're almost a doppelganger of each other. A doppelganger, right. I felt like the opening of this Bond is almost like an elevated horror film with the white mask and uh, the tension and the suspense. Can you talk a little bit about putting that together? Well, I think Tom and I nearly were ready to commit suicide by the time we finished getting that scene. <laughs> and we're both very happy with how it worked out. I don't mind saying it, though. It was a long journey. 
Well, yeah, I think it was really tough because that was one of the first things that we got on the film. And it arrived as we arrived. And I don't know about you, but I think the first set of dailies I find to be some of the hardest stuff to cut because I'm not in the groove yet. I'm overthinking things. Getting a sense of the style. Getting a sense sense of of the style. Am I going to get fired? You know, and so the other thing is it was hard to not have Daniel to latch on to initially. I, I think both of us were thrilled at what we were getting. We thought this is amazing, but it wasn't clear how that connected to things. And it would seem very much like an isolated bunch of scenes that we got. James Bond wasn't in the dailies. Yeah, so it's kind of tricky to know how long you can stay away from this iconic character. It also speaks to the running time of the film. You can imagine there were conversations about the length of the movie. In my opinion, the movie doesn't work if you don't have that scene. It's really, really, really important. The emotional component of the storytelling has to come before the duration every time. So there were conversations about whether that stayed or went, it was shorter, or it was a flashback within. No, it had to be the beginning. It was created to be that way. Whether the film should be longer or shorter is a totally different conversation, but that was a bold decision to start without Bond. And we all know that that was an important decision. Yeah, I mean, that was something Elliot and I had many conversations about. When Elliot and I were completely on the same page, we loved that the movie started with a very surreal scene that was almost out of a horror movie. I remember Carrie telling us a reference for that was The Shining. Mm. And so we really tried to forget Bond for a moment. Let's be with this girl. How do we make this unforgettable? But Elliot and I spoke a lot about how do we get from here to here faster. And I think we always expected that at some point, the powers that be would make us remove that flashback. And Elliot and I went through all sorts of drills thinking about, well, what would it be if you took it out? What would it be if you went to this instead? Could you have it later? And as Elliot said, we determined very quickly that you couldn't, that it was in the best place. Could you have the teaser only be that? Could you actually have the title song after Mm. that flashback? That would have been bizarre because when you go to a James Bond movie, you expect to see James Bond in the teaser. The couple movies that have done a teaser without Bond have always been less effective than the teasers with Bond. And ultimately... For Carrie and for the producers, to their credit, they stuck to their guns and said the emotional aspect of this is more important than how long it takes. I see how you could eliminate it, but then I don't think that you would feel Madeline's journey and it would be a lot less effective. And then the scene with Blofeld would also have a lot less meaning. It would really have a ripple effect. And this is where I think the producers are really approachable and amazing. The way it is now is how Kerry saw it and how he wanted it to be. The producers always backed him on that. That's great. And I think that the opening, one of the things that works so well is that transition to the ocean. You have this girl under the ice. You think she's going to die There's bullets coming down, and then she rises out of the ocean. That transition is so effective, it really pulls the audience in, and you're suddenly shocked into this new location. That was something Carrie really, really wanted, and the schedule was running out of time, and he fought for it, but he needed it, and he was right. Those transitions, I think Carrie handled really well. 
Carrie wanted to really present something that was disorienting in a way because you didn't know who this character was. And then after you have that transition, it becomes much more clear that it's the same person. This girl is now Leia Sadu. Carrie wanted to tell this story in an interesting, smart way. And his thought was, the audience is going to catch up to it. Let's be a little bit ahead of them. Well, it's a very complicated plot, and yet it's clear. And it's a huge testament to the filmmaking. It's a maze-like film. There's even a lot of scenes that feel like James Bond is in a maze. And you guys are withholding a lot of information from him, and he doesn't know who to trust He's sort of on this mission alone in a way. And yet with that very complicated story about bio warfare, it becomes very clear. And that's not an easy task, especially because, you know, there's certain bonds where I'm really enjoying them, but I don't quite know what the nemesis is trying to achieve. And in this one, it was very clear. I think what made it easier for us was that there was always a very personal, emotional story that was being told. And ultimately, that was more important to the audience than saving the world. I mean, I think the thought was, you know, the audience is going to have an idea that the world will be threatened by a larger than life villain and Bond will prevail and save the world. I think the difference with this film and a lot of previous Bond films is that there's an emotional story that's being told, a story of relationships, and that is one that we're always going to be able to hang our hat on. Bond has a dirty job, and he is our hero, but there's a complexity to that, certainly to Daniel Craig's version of it. And so if you're going to decide that you're actually going to end a story, where do you end it? And this seemed the right place, which is there's a bit of tragedy in saving the world, what do you give up of yourself? I'm glad the biowarfare worked. And by the way, there was lots of conversation about whether it should be nanobots or this or that. But 20 years from now, will people remember? Will they remember the emotional story? They'll remember the emotional story. And I, I felt like you guys took your time before that first explosion. Bond is moving on with this woman. He's in love. And when that explosion happens, the pace and everything changes on a dime. Half of it was a love story and half of it was an action scene, (laughs) to be very, the simple part of it, right? But as you pointed out, what makes it more than action is people's faces. So they landed the action with a drama. I also felt like all the camera moves were very smooth and elegant. And then once that explosion happens, we go to this very visceral, handheld, shaky camera that really feels unnerving to the audience. Again, I think this is where Carrie is a smart storyteller, where he knows that one thing is going to contrast the other thing, and it's going to make each one individually stronger. And so the thought was, take your time with the love story, or at least take your time enough so that we feel something. It is a little bit of a uh, wolf in sheep's clothing, because it's all there to tee up what's about to happen in the cemetery. It's all there to tee up this little ugly betrayal or supposed betrayal that's happening. I just thought it was so effective when he's getting the phone calls, doesn't know who it is, hears that he's been betrayed, takes the Aston Martin, which is an amazing chase scene, stops in the square, and the sound design and tension in that car while the assassin is shooting at this one part into the bulletproof glass is just so unnerving. Again, what makes that scene have any excitement or tension is the emotional component. 
So Bond feeling betrayed and feeling anger and a broken heart, that's what's driving him in that scene. And then we see it when the scene turns and he decides to fight back. That's like his emotions and his broken heart being weaponized. He's weaponizing his pain. And that's something that I think is almost exclusive to Daniel Craig's James Bond. I don't think that you would have other Bonds as brilliant as they were. I don't think you could see a scene like that. Can I talk for one second about length? Absolutely. Sure. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Defined by years, people's attention span, the internet, everything. You can talk about a perfect movie, an imperfect movie, which doesn't necessarily apply. But let's suppose in some worlds, a perfect movie is a movie that does not say it's welcome for one moment and only has exactly what needs to be told in the story. So let's say Raiders of the Lost Ark, I don't know, Back to the Future. No excess, does not stay its welcome. You could take The Godfather, which is long ago. Does that stay its welcome? Nope. And I don't want to talk about perfection or imperfection, but I will talk about, without naming a film, a film I worked on once, where the head of the studio with eight executives in the room and an editor <laughs> and a director asked, should 10 more minutes come out of the film? And everyone raised their hand and said, yes. The director and I were on a different page, except not. Yes, we thought 10 minutes should come out of the film. But if you lost the 10 minutes that was being asked for, you lost the movie. So do you want to be too little too long and emotionally effective, or did you want to be shorter and not emotionally effective? It's a very important question. So perfect and imperfect is not really significant. But what is significant is if you don't have the meat shortening it, uh-uh. You got to have the meat. You can't cut off the meat to shorten the film. If you can shorten the film in other ways, that's fabulous. That's a whole other conversation we could have and we won't. But that's an important thing to talk about just in of itself, I think. If you're not engaged as an audience and if you don't understand the internal workings of a character then you're going to tune out. So even if a movie is shorter, it might feel longer. And Absolutely. it's not about length. It's about whether you're engaging the audience, whether the audience is right. identifying with your lead characters. You're right on the mark. Sometimes you'll hear, oh, the movie feels too long. And it's not that it feels too long. It's that people are not understanding or engaging with the characters. And sometimes right. things have to go back in to make it play faster rather than constantly making or, it shorter. Or it plays a bit long and it feels a bit long, but you're still emotionally affected. And I feel like when we talk about these movies that are fast paced, I think that that can be exhausting for an audience. Roller coasters don't just go down, they go up and down. And you need that tension, that rubber band that Tom was talking about to really have that release. For instance, shooting against the window works so well because she's waiting for James to make a decision. And when he then puts the car in drive and starts doing that circular firing squad, that's at a totally different pace than what came before. And that's exciting for an audience because now they've switched to a totally different mode. So they're now riding on that roller coaster, not knowing what to expect. But if what came before was fast, it would not be as effective. So you've got this fantastic, very fast chase scene right before that, bombs coming out of the Aston Martin, but then they stop in that square and you take your time and then yeah. he makes a decision and you explode it again. That I think for an audience is very exciting. And not only the editing, but you look at Daniel's performance, you can't have that moment without that actor delivering. I totally agree. And that is something that Gelly and I would go back to again and again. How do we mine the best of Daniel? How do we mine the best of all the performances, you know, especially in the action scenes? So the scene you're talking about, 
there's amazing action photography, beautiful moves, but equally important were these moments of Daniel's face, Lea Sadu's face. That kind of makes the scene. Best quote from a director friend of mine was, the best visual effect you can buy is a great actor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Were you involved in Daniel Kleinman's title sequence at all? Yes, actually, Elliot and I took great pleasure in, you know, giving Carrie and Daniel our feedback. I mean, Danny Kleinman, who's done, I think, all of the Bond titles back to the Pierce Brosnan films, I think with the exception of Quantum of Solace. So for us as Bond fans, it was a yet another dream come true to meet Danny and collaborate with him. So we would make suggestions. He would bring different concepts and versions. And, you know, we'd all kind of have some feedback and talk about the things we liked. One of the most memorable things I remember was having a conversation with producer Barbara Broccoli. And we were talking about the gun barrel. I remember saying that we probably would have to shoot a new one for Daniel because the teaser was going to be in IMAX. I think Skyfall Inspector may have been presented in IMAX. Uh, No Time to Die was the first Bond film to actually shoot a 65-millimeter camera original. So my thinking was the whole teaser is in IMAX. You're going to want to have the gun barrel in IMAX. So um, (laughs) Danny was going to shoot the background plate of Daniel walking, turning, and shooting toward the camera. I made sure to tell our first assistant, Martin Corbett, find out when that's on the schedule. Let's go to the stage to see them shoot that. That'll be something special. So we went there, and Daniel Craig ran in, and he was dressed in a tuxedo, which, incidentally, is the only Daniel Craig gun barrel. There's been a new gun barrel for every Daniel movie. They never recycled. Hmm. Unlike previous Bond movies, they would recycle. Not always, but almost always. So... He came in, and I think he did about four takes, and Daniel said, I think that's it. And there's big applause, and Barbara Broccoli talked about how historic it was. But it was wonderful. I mean, Danny is very approachable, has great ideas, and very receptive, too. So, And then in that scene at the end, there's a little wink to the gun barrel mm-hmm. shot with Bond shooting down the corridor. That's right, in Safin's lair. Yeah, he's in this circular, cylindrical kind of corridor. I didn't originally use that coverage. I used some different coverage. And I do remember thinking it looked like the gun barrel, but I didn't. I actually kind of thought it was accidental at first. And then I I showed the cut to Carrie and Carrie's like, come on, man, you didn't use the shot, you know? (laughs) And so I'm like, oh, okay. I, I guess you're right. I didn't. I'm sorry. And, you know, that's the thing is as a Bond fan, it's fun because there's a lot of little tributes and little nods to previous movies every once in a while, whether it might be a little musical thing, like there's elements of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, that John Barry soundtrack, there are elements Mm. of that that Hans Zimmer used, which are really lovely. And then all down the line, there are things like costume and production design. When Valdo Oberchev is getting the weapon and they're wearing these biohazard suits are very much right out of Dr. No. Well, the island also... Right. You only live twice. And then there's other elements that are kind of from the books, too. You know, the Poison Garden is really inspired by the Poison Garden and the book version of You Only Live Twice. And so there's plenty of stuff that Carrie and Barbara and Michael Wilson pull from. Tell me a little bit about Cuba, because I think Anna de Armas is fantastic. I love how she's playing against your expectations, 
because she's so sexy, you you assume that she's going to have a handle on this. And she's very nervous around Bond. Anna could have her own spinoff. <laughs> she's fantastic in the film. I think Tom and I both had a lot of fun with her. because She gives that those multiple layers of, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm badass. <laughs> she does know what she's doing. She's charming. But Daniel Craig's sexy. They're sexy together. And what's interesting, right? In any other Bond film, they would have had a love scene. Most of the action sequences weren't shot at Pinewood, most, some. But that one was, so we could wander up to Cuba, you know, five-minute walk. Given that it was shot over five months, we'd go back and forth with Olivier, the stunt coordinator, sort of co-second unit director, who's a badass <laughs> French uh, martial artist. And we would run around with iPhones and assistant editors and stuntmen and try to figure out what would be some blocking that we could toss Carrie as suggestions. Carrie's always been figured out himself, look, but suggestions. And this is in part to help Daniel and producers understand how to time and budget what would be shot when. Figure out how you could tie together this man and this woman and these bad guys shot at different times. Starting with Thunderball, the Bond movies became multiple unit movies. This, mm. The scope and the scale of these productions grew exponentially. And this movie was no different. And I think where you really felt it were certain scenes in Cuba where multiple units were shooting. And because of Daniel's injury, sometimes second unit would be shot before first unit, which, as we all know as editors, poses substantial challenges. Yeah, Yeah. it's very challenging. And the editing of that scene lasted for months with Mm. just little pieces coming in here and there. And credit has to be given to Elliot for that because that was a huge undertaking. I think it was very important to Tom and I that this is one movie where we're two people, but one editing team, and that's really crucial. We're very lucky that we're cast together because not only were we on the same page aesthetically almost all the time, but it's very unique and special to have someone you can run scenes by. Did you recut each other, or was it more giving each other thoughts and notes? Oh, gosh, it would be both, but to mostly giving each other notes. But it would be retightening or trying an idea. Look, in my opinion, here's how it should be. For example, Kevin Feige at Marvel will say it, best idea wins. So I don't care if the best idea comes from the PA, and if the PA keeps coming up with the best idea, you should put him in charge, which is exactly what happened with Kevin Feige. (laughs) (laughs) And he should be in charge. He's the best idea. So that's how it should be with editors, and there's a lot of people, there's, there's, there's egos at play, and that's unfortunate, human, but it's bullshit. And so Tom and I, for way more than the most part, we're just like, hey, it's not about taking credit for scenes. It's about best idea wins. And the best way to do that is to share each other's ideas immediately. You're not trying to show off in front of the director. I have an idea for Tom. So you don't do that. You know, have a conversation, be a team. And we talked about it up front. That's the way to do it. That's the right way to do it. And for 99% of it, that's the way we did it. Makes a difference in life quality, but also in film quality, you know? Absolutely. And I remember thinking, I need to bring Elliot in here because... Elliot has cut a lot more action stuff than I had up to that point. And there were some scenes where I just didn't know, is this, am I going the right direction? Am I, am I too warm? I'm too cold, but I, I'm very grateful. Tom's saying, oh, he hadn't cut action before. But yes, he has. He got whiplash. That's action movie. People like to define you by, oh, this is a comedy editor, this is an action editor, this is a drama editor. And, you know, Tom and I are lucky enough to have done both. Stephen Daldry, who I worked with, did a film called Trash. He hadn't directed an action film before. It was an action film. He asked Paul Greengrass for advice because he was a little nervous about shooting action. And then Paul Greengrass told him, you have shot action. You shot Billy Elliot. And if you go back and watch it, that kinetic dancing, that's action. So there's a lot of misconceptions about what editing is. 
Absolutely. And uh, there's many, like you said, different types of action. And it doesn't have to just be car chases and gun battles. And it all goes back to the emotion of the characters, too. Yeah. So I thought Remy Malik is just awesome. And I love the slow cadence of his voice. It's absolutely chilling. You have an amazing actor giving an amazing performance. And I think that's something that we've come to expect with Bond films. They now create these stories where these characters have to be inhabited by these incredible BAFTA and Oscar-winning actors. So we've got Rami and we've got Christoph Waltz, you know, two villains played by two Oscar winners. So I think with that comes these amazing, nuanced, beautiful performances, and everyone wants to kind of give 110%. So Rami created this amazing and different villain one that had some familiar things and that he was the megalomaniac that was going to take over the world, creating this character that had all these little ticks and all these little vulnerabilities in a way. So he was fascinating to cut. There's a, a line that he gives that's just so strong and effective. Taking and saving a life means that they belong to you. And he seems like he collects things and there's something very chilling about him because he's almost socially awkward. He's socially awkward, <laughs> which is kind of an understatement. I love that. I love I mean, that. You know, he, he creates this character where, you know, there's so much detail and nuance. You know, how do you create a villain that is larger than life, but isn't just broad and something out of Austin Powers, you know? Absolutely. I think the only way you do it is by really owning it with a nuanced performance and live in it. You know, he is supposed to be a villain. He is supposed to be larger than life. Who else would have that poison garden lair? I'll tell a Rami story since you're asking though um, about him. But it really applies to any actor who understands storytelling. So there's a take where Rami has a line and he's like, that's not my best take. I was like, you're right. It's your second best take. And it was a conversation. We looked at it. Here's the reason we want his second best take. Because he's holding a little girl. And it was the little girl's best take. And she's five. There aren't that many best takes. It had to be that take. And it wasn't a take where you could do a split screen easily because of hair. It just wasn't. Because that's what served the story better. And he understood that. You know, to Elliot's point, making sure that we have the best moment. I think many of us editors do this now, but Elliot and I certainly would do things like split the screen to manipulate performance just to get sure. the best moment and the best effect. You know, I remember some moments that Elliot picked out in some Rami scenes in particular, using a piece that maybe Rami didn't think was going to be used or something that happened right before a reset that became, when Elliot put it into context, a brilliant character moment. Mm. You know, that's something Elliot and I both love to dig into, performance. And how do we make just these two characters talking to one another? How do we make that riveting and how do we make that emotional? We both love that. And Tom's being yeah. complimentary, but it goes both ways. And most importantly, we're cutting a Kerry Fukunaga movie, so it's going to be about the nuance of character, no matter what happens. Absolutely. And some of my favorite moments are character moments. For instance, I love the reveal of Blofeld in his cell. And then you have this tense scene between Bond and Madeline as his cell slowly comes down the hallway. We know that Madeline has sprayed something on her hands, which we assume is the toxin. The tension in that scene is excellent. That scene was a real showstopper because it was the only real meaty scene of Blofeld 
So he's certainly carried a certain amount of weight and also the fact that it's played by Christoph Waltz. And so you really wanted that scene to be really meaty. You wanted to build it up. What made it easy to build up in a way is Mark Tildesley, the production designer, made this amazing set where if you want to question the prisoner, instead of you going to the guy's cell, he's so dangerous that the cell comes to you. And I remember visiting the set and seeing how they would work this cage that would move down this corridor. And what was interesting is that it was basically these two grips on the roof of the set, and they would have a pulley system where they would manually pull this cage down the line, you know? So it wasn't hydraulic or automatic uh-huh. or anything like that. It was just, but it, it was like, like two it. guys were pulling it, you know? Uh-huh. So One of the things that probably makes it seem like it's hydraulic is all the sound that you guys put in. And so movie magic, you, you totally believe that it's not some grips pulling a pulley. It's right. been designed. and That's right. A, it's truly mechanical. It invited it to be shot in these interesting ways, which Linus and Carrie did behind the cage and the cage coming towards us and POV of the cage and et cetera, et cetera. And then when it came time to cut it, you couldn't help but use some of these angles. One of the things that I love about that scene, too, is that there's all this buildup. And when Blofeld gets there, James is at a loss for words because he has to get something from Blofeld. It goes from being very intense to very funny as these two people have this awkward conversation. Well, yeah, and and it's right on the edge. I mean, when you have that buildup, it's so intense. Now what's going to happen? How bad is it going to be? And, of course, the way Christoph Waltz plays it, there's obviously a bit of dark wit there. It's almost over the top. You have the world's most iconic spy meeting the Darth Vader of the Bond world years before (laughs) Darth Vader. And it's just on the edge of being too over the top. But you can kind of do it because you've got Daniel and you've got Christoph Waltz and you have these amazing actors. I love the Bond escape in the SUV scene. You guys kept it about character, having lots of reactions and close-ups of Bond and Madeline and the daughter in the car leading to the fog Mm -hmm. scene. Speaking about the maze-like quality of this film, that scene is so disorienting and feels like you're in a maze with the distant sound of motorcycles and not knowing where anybody is and having trouble seeing things. Well, that was shot in Scotland and in the Windsor Woods, not far from Pinewood uh, and on green screen stages. So another one of those magic of filmmaking. We've all seen a lot of chases. I like the whole chase. The chase was four times longer. The heart of it was where you ended up in the mist. Mm. That was the most unique part, right? And that was 100% Carrie. He feels more personal in the woods, partly because it's Carrie and Daniel and Carrie being Carrie, which is not just kinetic energy all over the place, but like focused personal tension. And you're right. He's getting lost in the woods, which is sort of an expression of Bond's mind for sure. It's also an expression of Carrie's unique talents. That scene is a pure illustration of what Carrie does with the camera and with character. The sound throughout the movie, and especially in that scene, is fantastic. Can you tell me a little bit about working with the sound designers? And Well, I can tell you two things. One, Oliver is one of the greatest sound designers in the history of film, and he's fabulous, and he gave us a lot of sounds very early, which is mm. a treat. I'll also say that I love doing sound design, and I'll do a tremendous amount of sound design up front because there's different philosophies, and I don't buy into any philosophy. <laughs> I just don't. So I don't believe that you serve picture first, and music and sound second. 
I think it's a delicate dance between the three of them. So Danny Boyle would tell you, yeah, you toss a certain track on a scene and all of a sudden it can be a very different scene. Then there'll be other people who say, well, no, make it the exact picture you want and not the sound and music serve that. Hey, however you want to do it. My personal perspective is it's a dance. I will say on this film, we had more great sound from Oliver early than I've ever had on any movie. And it was such a joy. Do you tend to temp in music when you're editing or do you wait until you're working with the uh, director? I like to fully temp it for the same reasons we were discussing earlier. Music, sound, and picture for me being a sort of dance. doesn't mean it's the music that's going to end up being there or it's right. (laughs) But I really like to discover it on all three fronts. So, yeah, I do a lot of temping and I love it. And it does not mean that the composer should feel they need to copy it. But it helps lead me and guide me. And sometimes I'll take the music off after having a scene that I like and toss on another song just to see how it screws with it. Because maybe a new idea comes out of it, right? Absolutely. I think that's the joy of what we do. We get to touch all these different parts other than perhaps the lighting. So I love that you get to play with everything in a way that very few people outside the director get to. Yeah, I mean, I think that people don't realize that editing is not just putting shots together in a sequence. You're touching on the music. You're touching on the sound effects, the lighting, the performances. You're touching on the pace, the visual effects. You're the right-hand person to the director. What I love about the job is you get to work with all these brilliant people who do other things because film is a collaborative art, even if you're an auteur from, you know, as a director, it just is. Danny Boyle likes the theory of what he calls many directors. He wants people who come in with perspectives. And the truth is all the great directors want that. Sound in general was something that was really important to Kerry. He really wanted to have moments where we let the sound design carry it. In the forest, it was really important to carry because he had created this foggy atmosphere to really hear vehicles like motorcycles traveling around you. But you don't exactly know where they are. Yeah, I love how sometimes you would hear the motorcycle and it would sound far away. And then in a different speaker, maybe behind you, you'd hear another motorcycle and it was like right on you. It really felt like you were being circled, like caught in a web. By Carrie's design, a couple of those scenes, he would tell the sound department, play jazz, your time to shine. (laughs) I want to feel a 360 sound field. He really wanted to hear those motorcycles go around. And I think what's great about the way he and Lena Sangren shot it is with this dense amount of fog, which in some cases, Elliot had them embellish in VFX. Another sound moment was in the teaser when Bond's Aston Martin, his DB5, gets T-boned. The Spectre agents all converge in that square, and they start pummeling the car with bullets. And that was something where Carrie really wanted to live in that moment. He really wanted to feel as if you were in the car Mm. with Bond and Madeline. And so he always pushed to embellish it and extend it out pictorially. And also by letting it play picture-wise, he would direct the sound department to really, again, create a 360 sound field where you Mm -hmm. really would feel all the pummeling from every single side. Sometimes when we're cutting scenes, we feel like we need to pace things up. And if you pace it up too much, then you don't create the space and the time for those sound moments. That's exactly right. And, And, you know, the scenes that precede it, the chase had to be very punchy and you really had to kind of propel But once that car gets hit in the square, 
you're kind of resetting the clock in a way. And and mm-hmm. I think we all thought that was a place where we could really draw it out. And and draw it out, you want it to have an impression. You don't want people to be bored, but you want them to feel the discomfort. A big part of it, I remember Carrie, one shot in particular, he really wanted to linger on, which was a shot of Leia Sadu, and we just see her squirming. That's a shot where Carrie wanted to stay on that longer than you normally would because it gets really uncomfortable. That carries so much emotional weight. She's really freaking out and afraid. So that was something where we could say to Oliver and team, go for it. There's a lot of space for you to do some wonderful work here, which they did. It's incredible. We cut this film in 5-1, and it would be very hard to design without having speakers surrounding you, which is why for that film, 5-1 was incredibly useful. But it truly didn't come fully alive until we're on the mix stage with Oliver. What were some of your favorite scenes? The end scene with him on the rooftop. There's never been a scene like that in the Bond movie. Everybody will respond differently. I hope people are emotional. We'll see. Yeah. It could have been where you took out some of that to help with time. But uh, the time that it takes him to get to the rooftop and the conversation with Madeline was was very intense and very emotional. Yeah. It happens on films all the time, right? Where you'll get notes. Well, it feels too long in this part. And it's like, wrong. As you know, usually it feels too long there because it was too long earlier. I mean, there's maybe a lot of voices that we could have excised more material, whatever. The truth is we excised material earlier so we could spend more time there because that's where you needed to spend the time and give Daniel the moment that the whole movie has been leading towards. Sure. And so that was a beautiful scene to cut. And he was riveting. Mm -hmm. And his performance, this is a guy who, if it weren't called James Bond, would be nominated for an Oscar in an instant, in my opinion, for this part and for that scene. And maybe he will be. I don't know. But I feel it's unusual and spectacular in terms of what he does as an actor. And I looked at every single one of those takes. They're all great. But there was one take where it just broke your heart. Mm-hmm. Same with her. And I think that entire scene was primarily one take of him and one take of her intercut, even though there were many, many takes of each because they just hit the note. I love what you're saying about Sometimes people will think that the issue is a particular scene or sequence, but what is actually the issue is what comes before. They they can't always pinpoint what's bothering them. They might know that something's bothering them, but the solution is oftentimes something else that's going on. Yeah, I love and hate test screenings. The most important test thing in the test screening, for example, is to just be there and feel the audience. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to feel the room. It's subjective. Silence of the Lambs, question that will be on the test screening list. Who's your least favorite character? Well, who do you think the answer to that question is? Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> Does that mean we should get rid of those characters? Yeah, let's, let's lose Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> right. So where did it feel slow? Here. Well, you may have people who go, well, let's cut it down there. Maybe that's right. Most likely it's not. Because you don't start feeling something too long until you've already gotten to the point where it's too long, which meant it was earlier. <laughs> yeah. Not always, but sometimes. I like when students and executives and producers use those questions and answers for discussion rather than point for point statistics. And then they're incredibly useful. Yeah. I think that it's very informative to hear that something is bothering somebody. It's not always informative for them to give a solution because as film editors, we know the film better than anybody. So we can formulate that it might not actually be that particular thing that's bothering people. It's good for us to know that something's bothering somebody because then we can analyze it. But oftentimes that's not 
the solution. It is something that came before, or it is something that people are not understanding about the character. And then it comes to fruition in that particular scene. Yeah. I like screenings and I, I love to hear every single person's feedback. And I like being surprised and I like being wrong because it refreshes your perspectives. But I certainly won't take literally the question and answers on forms, but you take a lot from that data and how you interpret it. Look, there's times where you're, you know, you're in the middle of the scene, you've been enjoying it and halfway through the scene, you're bored. Okay, problem with the scene. But usually when you start to feel like you're checking out a bit, it's because it's been slowing down earlier and you need to find a way to get there faster. Sure. Again, I want to make clear that I work with some studio executives who are geniuses and I work with others who are like, that's the people's least favorite scene. Well, yes, it is because that's the scene where the hero has the darkest moment of their journey. So it's a little <laughs> bit hard to watch. Well, on the other hand, they don't have that moment. You can't really have a, you know, a successful happy ending because they didn't overcome anything. Yeah. Film that I won't mention recently where one of the best scenes in the film became clear to me and another editor that it was fantastic and would never stay in the movie mm. because it felt like a payoff that hadn't been set up. Mm. And it wasn't a joke, but it was humorous. And the audience at all five test screenings did not laugh one time and it didn't work in the movie and had to go. So you learn from that. But that's, it's all part of the beautiful process of making it, finding yep. what your film really is, right? If we use Kubrick and then Fincher as examples of people who are exacting to the last millimeter of filmmaking in production, then why does Kubrick take a long time to edit his movie? Surely you could just go, cut, 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 release the movie. It was planned. Because he knows it's another voyage, no matter how much you plan it. 100%. I also love the word that you use with it being a dance. Because I do feel that music and dance and choreography is very involved in the editorial process. Yeah. Look, I know a lot of editors who don't do a tremendous amount of sound and music, and uh, I don't think more or less of anyone because they made some spectacular films. So how am I to judge? I can only speak for myself and that I don't know how to cut a scene. I simply don't until I start involving sound and music. I can cut it with just people talking. Absolutely. I can do that. It's not a problem. I can give you a good scene, but I don't know if it's the best scene until I start using all the ingredients. And then you might have the best version of the scene and to a certain extent at that point. Everybody loves it. It has sound, it has picture, it has music. Why not leave good enough alone? Because you look good, you got a scene. Everybody loves it. But I'll turn off the monitor sometimes. I'll even put a little flap over that right avid screen and I only see the timeline. And I'll specifically chop it up and toggle between other angles and toss in shots in random places and change the music. <laughs> what you watch is utter chaos. But when people talk about happy accidents... I started getting frustrated with the idea of first you cut a film or do anything creatively and then you try to think outside the box, right? But it's outside the box is really just outside. It's just, it's just further exploration of your mind, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you get away from that other than other people's perspective? I, I, I try to create chaos and then it's usually just chaos. You turn it back on and play it. But every now and then there's an idea that you would have never, ever thought of. <laughs> I love that. So it's just an exploration of sound, music, and picture. And Yeah, I, I love that because I feel like sometimes you have to get out of your comfort zone to see things that you might not have seen. Yeah. And like you said, a scene could be working really well, but sometimes if you break it, yes. it'll reveal an even greater truth to that particular scene. That was really well said. Yeah. Push every scene to a 12. It doesn't mean every scene should be intense, but whatever it should be, push it past its breaking point and then pull back. Absolutely. And, and if you don't uh, know what the breaking point is, get abstract is sort of my way of thinking. Yeah. And sometimes you have to look at something a little bit more abstractly to find its essence. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you'll 
just watch it with the picture or here's the one just listen to it with the sound and don't watch it it's just all fun and it gives you new ideas and it's part of the joy of what we do what's fun is both of us got to cut all sorts of stuff we all got to cut some m scenes we all got to cut some q scenes all got to cut action we all got to cut stuff with rami i don't know it was, i thought it was a really nice experience in that way that we both did a little bit of everything um, how did you guys uh, divide that stuff up we kind of pick things as they came in. Sometimes you'd get something and you might say, I want and I cut this thing because it connects to this other thing and I've already done it and now we'll have a run. But often it was just stuff would just come in and whoever wasn't doing something, you would just take something and just sure. go with it from there. So with this particular film, what were the greatest challenges? Well, the running time was a challenge because mm -hmm. you want it to move as swiftly as it can while conveying the emotion it needs to convey. And this movie had a lot of emotion to convey and complexity to convey, and it was necessary and important to do so. And it took time to do that. I got to tell you, there's a lot of different perspectives you know, from people involved on what should go and what should stay. And I'm not going to get into that because it's, it's not about rights or wrongs. It's just that, that's how a film is made, right? A lot of different perspectives. And it's the longest Bond film. You got to theorize. There were a lot of different discussions about what's most important to the story. 100%. And I do feel like this Bond is complicated to cut down because it's not just about saving the world. There's so much more going right. on. It felt like a responsibility, not just to make a great, or the best Bond film we could make, right? And not just to wrap up the Daniel Craig era, but a responsibility to Daniel Craig. The man has given himself to this role for 15 years. It's his life. And he wanted to go out on a high note. And with all due respect to everybody involved in all those films, because it's the same filmmakers, Skyfall, spectacular. And Daniel feeling was, I can go out on a higher note and wanted to. And I think everyone wanted to service that. The character and Daniel Craig, the actor, both deserve the opportunity to go out on a high. And so does the audience who are invested in that journey. It was definitely, you know, on my bucket list. I mean, that's kind of an understatement. The first movie memory I have is from a James Bond movie. Um, <laughs> so that the whole experience was very magical and wonderful. Being at Pinewood Studios and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, you were like a kid in a candy store. I remember the first Bond movie that I saw was Live and Let Die, and it blew my mind. I mean, I, I saw other Bond movies, but that was the first one in a theater, and I just I was just blown away. Yeah. There's some early memories, like seeing those movies on TV, seeing the first ones in the movie theater as a kid. Watching you know, the marathons every year. <laughs> watching the marathons, exactly. I mean, just being in Matera, Italy, and seeing the interest of all the tourists from all over the world wanting to get a glimpse of the film and wanting to get a glimpse of Daniel Craig. And I remember hearing Italian tour guides utter the words, zero, zero, setta. <laughs> you know, referring to 007, who was just around the corner. I think it's hilarious that you were in one of the most beautiful cities in the world and everybody was interested in seeing James Bond <laughs> and seeing <laughs> the most amazing sights that I've ever That's seen right. on film, practically. That Matera is such a beautiful ancient city. And the only thing that puts it over the top in terms of beauty is seeing that silver Aston Martin DB5 just parked there on the street or something, you know, <laughs> is just kind of mind blowing. Cobblestone Street with the Aston Martin exactly. parked there. Yeah, cobblestone streets often very sticky because we were told that the production crew would hose down some of those areas with soda. 
so that the cars would have better traction when they were doing car chase stuff. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed the movie. I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed talking to you guys. Really appreciate talking to you about it and glad that you like the film. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. We really appreciate it. If we don't do this, there will be nothing left to save.